This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Wednesday, November 13th. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with Catherine Bracey. Hi, Catherine. Hi. You used to live in Massachusetts, but now you are in San Francisco. Is that correct? That's right. So are you sad that you're not going to get to experience this upcoming winter? Absolutely not. Um, and I am reveling in taunting all my East Coast friends. Yeah, we, we get a lot of that, actually. We're, we're fairly used to that. I feel like when you move from the East Coast to the West Coast, then uh, you have like three years during which you can you can make fun without being a jerk. Right. So I'm taking full advantage of it. Huh. So there's a statute of limitations on that. Exactly. So this will be my second winter on this coast. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you just get kind of used to it, right? And you, you, you don't feel superior, just like it, you just can't handle temperatures below a certain point after a while. Exactly. It's like 50 degrees, what? Yep. I was out in San Diego recently and then got a lot of that from people. Slightly spoiled. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense that you people still live on the East Coast. It really doesn't. Awesome. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, we got introduced to each other through um, someone that works at ThoughtBot, and uh, I'm excited to be talking to someone from Code for America. I think that's a really cool organization. We do too. Yeah. So I was reading through a lot of your site, and I read your annual report, and I was just educating myself a bit. And one thing that jumped out at me is, was your, your mission statement was like surprisingly direct and good. Um, and it was, you're trying to create interfaces to government that are simple, beautiful, and easy to use. Yeah. And that's, that that's means awesome. a lot. That means a lot, though. Um, there's a lot packed in there. So, first of all, um, interfaces to government aren't just technological interfaces. They're any way that citizens interact with government. And most of the time, those interactions are, you know, we, we think mostly about politics and government at the federal level because that's what the media covers and that's where the political horse races are usually fought. But most interactions that citizens have with government happen at the state or local level. Um, so if you think about, you know, your trash getting picked up, the potholes getting filled, getting your driver's license, access to food stamps, sending your kids to public school, all of those things happen at the local level. And we think that, you know, by fixing those experiences and make, making those experiences simpler, more beautiful, more easy to use, that we help build trust in government at all levels. Absolutely. And it's, it was, so I, there were some great examples in the annual report I read. One was this service um, that was built for the city of Chicago, which is apparently, I think there's a number, it's like 311 you call in Chicago to like report things like, oh, there's a pothole on the street or there's a street light out or, you know, there's graffiti over here. And this app basically just uh, is almost like a project management or it kind of tells you what the status of all these calls are. So you get sort of like a, a case number for each of these things and you can see, you know, oh, they've actually came by and looked at the pothole and said, yeah, we're going to fill this and it's going to happen on this date. Yeah, I mean, it's, some, it's a small thing, but if you think about, you know, how often um, our interactions with government are bad because we feel like we're just dropping something into a black hole, we never know what happens with that feedback and, and it discourages you from ever saying anything in the first place. And then that just breeds cynicism and mistrust and so by building a tool that helps people see not just what's happening with their requests, but where all of their requests are coming in and what the problems are and where the patterns are, helps people understand that their participation actually makes government work better, makes their cities work better. 
And so that's really what we're trying to do is, um, you know, figure out ways that, that citizens can participate in building government and making their cities better and that governments can more easily incorporate their, their participation into their day-to-day activities. It benefits the governments as well because people can see that they are doing things. Like it increases that visibility. Right. There. If you actually went into City Hall and, and, and worked with the city partners that, that we work with every day, you'd know that they are really busting their asses and doing you know great work for very little recognition and a lot of um, you know, they're held up as an example of bureaucracy and it's, you know, no one ever really gives them the, the credit that they're due. And so um, by creating these ways that they can build that trust with, with citizens, people start to see this is actually, um, these, are, these people are actually working for us. It seems like this would be like a, a reasonably straightforward, well, maybe a possibly straightforward thing to sell to people in government because it's, it's, it's going to benefit them as well. That's it's uh, pretty popular, and we are literally selling to government. We, you know, one of the things that one of the areas that we focus on in order to make government more responsive is helping them procure better software. Um, this is something that's been front of mind recently for a lot of people who have been following healthcare.gov debacle. But yes, I mean, we want to create a an ecosystem of vendors who can literally sell um, these solutions to government that are. Uh, that actually work, you know, that's the first thing, and that are vastly cheaper than the set of options that are available to them right now. Yeah, seems like there's definitely a lot of ground to be gained in there. Yes. The, the low-hanging fruit is on the ground. Yeah, uh, it's rotting. Um, it's, you know, 94% of all government IT projects in the U.S. that are over $10 million fail. They're either delivered late or they're over budget or they just don't work. Um, and that is a scandal, and it's something that um, needs to be fixed. I mean, we see it when something like healthcare.gov doesn't work because it's so high profile, but it happens every day at every level of government, and it really is scandalous. I wonder if there's some degree to which simply making projects be forcing projects to be smaller than that could help address those problems. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it's you know the the, the companies that are selling these tools to government don't have any interest in uh, lowering their prices you know it's a cartel essentially and their expertise is in navigating the contracting process not in building technology Um, and so their business model is just built on extracting as much money from government as government will let them extract and our hope is to help build an in-house expertise in in modern technology that will allow government to say that's just not we're not going to accept these sets of solutions. You have to build something better. So that's one of the things we, we try to do. I mean, if, if, if there had been more technical expertise in-house at the agencies that were responsible for healthcare.gov, I think you would have seen a different outcome. And so that kind of capacity is something that we, we try to create inside city halls. So I, I wonder to what degree those huge price tags um, are a result of, the, of that difficult contract process because like if i if i have to spend this much time and this this many you know person hours to get it done then i kind of have to charge a huge amount for it right right and and the contracting process requires you to have all of these things in place um which drives up the cost and you know a startup can't can't bear that risk they can't spend all that time answering an rfp that's going to take a year or 18 months with little chance that they're going to get the award. And, you know, the other 
vendors who are in the process can challenge those awards. So if, if they decide to go, if government decides to go with sort of an outsider and then get challenged by the Cisco's of the world, that's just, that just makes the project even harder and more expensive. So there's no incentive right now, really, for them to choose the, you know, it's like no one ever got fired for going with IBM. I mean, that's, there's no incentive for them to go with the cheaper, more, uh, you know, more agile product. So, so is that another thing that you guys, that you help work on is improving the contract process for government? We're just starting a year-long project now on making some, researching the procurement process at all levels of government and making some recommendations around policy changes. Um, there are some governments that are doing this in a piecemeal form now, like kind of experimenting with some stuff. The city of Philadelphia puts all their RFPs on GitHub. You know, one thing is just putting the putting the com- or the RFPs in a place where developers are, you know, and not just you know expecting them to come to whatever .gov website where they're posted and sort through is just not realistic. We have uh, our friend Clay Johnson, who's probably the leading expert on government IT procurement in the country who used to be a presidential innovation fellow and, and worked on, a, on an RFP project while he was at the White House, um, has started a company that r- makes it easier for startups to understand what the RFP process is, puts, puts contracts and, and RFPs in plain language, and helps kind of break down those barriers. But we do really need some structural reform, and I think the president has learned the hard way that this is a priority, and and he has said publicly on many occasions since the healthcare.gov debacle that um, this is a, a policy change that he wants to see made at the federal level. So you uh, recently switched jobs inside of Code for America, and you now are running the brigade program? Yeah, so I'm doing all of our community organizing work, which is mostly our brigade program, which is our citizen volunteer program. Um, It's also managing our international partnerships Um, and then really just thinking about how we turn Code for America inside out and offer as many entry points for citizens and other organizations working in the ecosystem to plug into the work that we're doing. So my vision is anyone anywhere in the world can feel empowered to start a civic hacking project and plug into a community of others who are working on civic hacking projects whenever they want. Mm -hmm. And help get support from you somehow. Yes. So creating a a set of resources, training materials, help uh, with redeploying some of the tools that we've already built, you know, guidance in partnering with government, which is always the, the hardest part of any of our projects. And really just, I mean, the most valuable thing we have found that we can do is build that community and help people find each other who are working on similar projects. So, so if, that's, if that's sort of the high-level vision, then what, do your, what are your day-to-day tasks look like? Well, I'm definitely a community organizer. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of talking to our volunteers. It's a lot of trying to understand what their, where their pain points are. It's helping think through how we can make their jobs easier. Um, I come from the Obama world where networked organizing was the foundation of, you know, it's why President Obama is President Obama. And taking a lot of the lessons that we learned there on how to kind of push empowerment to the edges and, you know, decentralize authority and, but at the same time, create a common purpose um, and a common message and a common goal. That's a, that's a big task. So basically on a day to day, I'm thinking about how to operationalize that, how to grow our network, how to make our engagements with government deeper and more meaningful, 
and how to get our message out about how important the values of civic hacking are for um, strengthening our democracy. It's 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 funny hearing you say like the decentralization and sort of pushing the power to the edges. It 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 really clicked for me like why you have found allies in sort of the open source programming world because like that's just yeah. it's the same thing. It's exactly the same sort of model. It's the same model. It's also the model that American democracy is built on. So if you read the Federalist Papers or Democracy in America, the values of the uh, you know, the post-revolutionary America was decentralization, empowering people at the edges in, you know, the small townships that really made up the American, the country in those, you know, early, uh, early 19th century, everyone was involved in government. It was, there was no separation between citizens and government. You were all on the school board um, because you were all sending your kids to the same school. And so those values are deeply embedded in our democracy. And so it makes a lot of sense that we would try to use network technologies and network ways of organizing to bring back those values that kind of got lost over the 20th century. Is, is that just, was that a loss of connectedness in general or just a connectedness to government? Well, there's some, there's some graduate thesis in here somewhere, but um, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, I guess it was, you know, modernism with the, after, you know, World Wars One and Two, and the advent of broadcast media, and and um, kind of this cult of expertise, where you know all the political and economic systems were complexified to such a point where you had to really like no no lay person could really engage with it on any, any meaningful level. That divorced us from as citizens from the way that government actually works. Whereas before, citizens had a lot of options and a lot of ways to plug into actually building government. It kind of devolved into this passive, like you can vote and you can sign a petition and you can write a letter and you can protest. But there wasn't, there weren't these avenues where you could actually like build something um, useful. And that's what we're trying to re-energize. And I think you know, the, the internet and other network technologies allow us to do that because the tools are there. So, so the, the brigade is, is sort of like a platform for linking these people up that are, have this shared, shared interest. Is that, is this a thing that people have asked for? There were independent people working and they wanted to do it, or is this something that you're creating in the hopes that it will attract people or probably, or both maybe? Kind of a little bit of both. It's, started out of um, an event called City Camp, which actually still happens. Um, but it was one of those things, and anyone who's run a hackathon or an unconference and, and knows that, you know, once you have one of those events, it's really hard to keep the energy going and make something sustainable. Lots of good ideas come up, and then there's no real avenue to bring those people back together to, to really work on um, making those actionable. And the brigade was an attempt to do that. There was a really great city camp event that our founder, Jen Polka and Kevin Curry, who launched the brigade program a couple of years ago that they put on together and there was so much energy. They just couldn't let it die. And so they, um, so they decided to invest in building out this network of, of local volunteers. Um, and it also was a really good complement to what at the time was our flagship program, I guess still is our flagship program, which is the fellowship program. So the fellows come in, you know, they're kind of a ninja force. They come in and work full time for a year, but they're most usually not from the city they're working in um, and they leave after a year. And so the brigade is a way to engage people on the ground who have a stake in those communities um, who are going to be there, you know, forever and, and can support the city in maintaining some of that energy and, and you know, even kind of uh, sustaining the tools that were built by the fellows. 
Yeah, I'm glad you actually touched on that because that's something I wanted to talk about. There was a there's a great quote about the fellowship program in particular where someone said someone from government said the fellows don't know that what they're attempting is impossible, so they continue to deliver. Right. Which is just awesome. And and that actually matches really well with my experience of working on a project and then having someone new come into it. And they're sort of like, why is this like this? And you're like, yeah. actually, I have, I have no idea. Why, why is that like that? And like the, the people with those fresh eyes are like just amazing at, at spotting what is crazy and dysfunctional and, you know, fixing it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's never that simple in government um, because the entrenchment is a lot deeper and more calcified than it probably is a, in whatever company um you're working in and and so they you know they uh, there is a lot of frustration but you know that's where innovation comes from you're putting people who don't normally have conversations with each other in a you know high pressure situation where they got to come out with something at the end and they come up with some really cool stuff that neither they on their own would have thought of nor would the government partners have thought of Mm -hmm. and so that's the thing that's really exciting about the fellowship. I mean, they, you know, there are a lot of tears and, you know, whiskey shots in the middle of the day. But um, I think that's, that just goes to show that we're actually doing something that's meaningful and and bringing about change. And over the course of three years, which it feels like a lot longer than that, but, you know, the amount of change we've seen in some of these cities is astronomical, especially in places like Philadelphia and Boston, which were the first cities we were working in this is now, this is institutionalized. It is taken for granted as part of the city's DNA. Um, and that's the kind of change that we want to see embedded in government to really adopt these values and incorporate them into the way that they do business, making all city employees entrepreneurs and innovators. Do you, are you familiar with any particular examples of, of fellow, fellowship work in Boston? Yeah, so one. this is a, probably the best example of the arc of, Code for America. Um, in 2011, our fellows arrived in Boston right at the beginning of this new uh, policy of school choice. And now parents didn't have to send their kid to the closest school they could choose. Um, you know, and the, you know, it wasn't just they could choose wherever. There was some rules behind it. So there was an algorithm that would actually place the child in a school. And it was super complicated. Uh, and the book that they, that the government, the city sent to parents in order to help them figure out, navigate the selection process was, a, you know, it looked like one of those books that comes with your tax form. It was insane. It was like, it looked like the government made six, it. Yes, exactly. Six point font, 30 pages long, and no one could make heads or tails of it, um, which you can imagine stressed parents out. Um, and so the Globe did an expose called it the school assignment maze. And of course, um, the, the administration and, and politicians were freaking out. Um, and that was the context that the fellows were stepping into. And so the city said, you've got to help us fix, build something that will make this process easier. And so they built a tool called Discover BPS, which instead of waiting through this long book, you enter your address and your child's age, and it gives you back the list of all the schools that your child is eligible for, including information like what the after-school programs are, how far the bus stop is. I mean, data that parents care about. Basically, what they did was they put the parents at the center of the decision-making process and not the school district. Like, all the things the school district cared about required were, you know, the outcome of that was this crazy book. But all parents care about are, you know, 
my kid is this old and this is where I live. Like that's all you should have to say in order to get back the list of schools. Um, and it's similar to healthcare.gov in that way. It's, you know, you had to enter all this information before you even got to see how much insurance was going to cost. And that's why the system broke down. So Discover BPS was a huge success. The school uh, superintendent said it changed the way that, um, they re that the school district relates to parents. Last year, half of all Boston public school parents used uh, Discover BPS to, to select a school for their child. And this year, it is the sole source of school information for parents um, as they choose uh, schools for their kids in the fall, this coming fall. No more book? No more book. Awesome. And um, you can find the new version at discoverbps.org, I think. Uh, yep. Yeah, I mean, it's super simple. And um, the city has invested in a huge advertising blitz to make sure that parents are aware of it. So, and it's now being maintained by the city. So that's something that's really, so that, that scope from kind of real government dysfunction in the form of this booklet to the fellows building basically a prototype in no time, you know, a couple of weeks to half of all parents using that tool to the city adopting it as its canonical resource is really powerful for us. And there's no, in that, when, when cities see that, there's no way they're going to go back to the original way of doing business and think that that's the only option they have. And so I think that, you know, that has inspired them to look at all kinds of problems in a different way. It's interesting. I, I've heard people talk about programming as a little bit of a superpower, which I think is kind of like a good analogy, because to people that aren't aware what you can do with it and, and the power that it has, it's kind of, it seems like you can do some things that are almost impossible. Um, and so you look at this thing and a programmer looks at that book and says, well, this is just an algorithm. Like I can write a thing that returns, you know, which schools you can go to in a day. Um, but to people that aren't aware of that, they write a 30-page book. Right. And the, on the other side of the coin, programmers usually don't understand the kind of problems that cities are facing or government faces or what it feels like as a citizen to have to apply for food stamps. Or I think it's just interesting how often it, it actually is a small amount of programming to make a problem so much better. It's, it's not probably really about that, that that site is so complicated. It's just that, you know, it, it needed to just, it just needed to be a little bit better. That's right. The technology is never our biggest issue. I mean, we could build tools all day long that work. The issue is getting, you know, first of all, understanding the problem, and which is non-trivial, and getting the adoption, um, both by government and by citizens. So that's really what the fellows end up spending most of their time on. I like that you mentioned is understanding the problem is the hard part. And you said something, which is, you know, the, the first round was built more or less for the school district at, in mind, and you end up with the booklet. And then the fellows come in, and the, the problem is really you, you, they weren't thinking about who the customer was, who the, like, the real stakeholder was. And like I've seen this kill other projects before. It's like you don't really know who's going to be using it at the end or, or the wrong people have you know, influence on the design decisions and you get something that the, you know, the end, the real customer doesn't actually want. Yeah, and you know, you'd be surprised at how... So let's take criminal justice, for example. The way that cities are set up, and our, our fellows in Louisville and New York worked on criminal justice this year. The way that cities are set up, you know, the people who touch the criminal justice system from, a, from the government side are spread out all over the place. Um, and they're more or less siloed off. Like their day-to-day -day job doesn't usually take them into close contact with a lot of the other areas of the system. So even the city workers don't have a full appreciation for the problem. And the fellows came in and in Louisville, for example, 
They um, sat in courtrooms all day. They rode around with police officers. They visited jails. They talked to defendants. They talked to juveniles. They worked with people who were um, doing like pre-incarceration programs or, or um, alternatives to incarceration. And in that, you know, through that process, they developed in many cases a better understanding of the systemic problem than the people working in government do. And so they are able to make recommendations that wouldn't necessarily come out of, you know, an intergovernmental meeting. There's definitely like there's organizational benefits to splitting responsibilities up, right? Like and, and having these sort of silos because you can sort of specialize on the thing that you do. Right. But then you miss out on that opportunity to have like cross cutting improvements. If you think about it, it, it doesn't it doesn't make practical sense to have the judges in close contact with the beat officer, you know, like that's never going to really, you can't really facilitate that in any meaningful way on a day-to-day basis. Um, but people who can see across the programs and then build tools that help um, bring that cross-cutting observational awareness to everyone's desk, that's a huge value add. Yeah, absolutely. So were there uh, specific things that came out of the that fellowship work? Yeah, in Louisville, they built this gorgeous, um, dashboard. So anybody working inside the system can see at any given time, in real time, how many beds are filled in the jail, who they're filled by, what the what these slots are available in, in um, alternative incarceration programs, what people are in jail for, and there's it's over time as well. So they, I think they have data back to like the late '80s. You can. There's a demo video from our, our annual summit online. You can see it. There's like gasps and from the audience about how beautiful this is. And it's, you know, our government partner said this is something we've wanted for 20 years and we're never able to build. And these guys built it in eight months. How, how does that? Why does it get like that? Well, again, like you you throw people into a situation who don't know what they're trying to do is impossible. And they've got tools. I mean, again, it's not that hard to build technology. It's the hard part is the, the human side of it. And so I'm assuming that the problem in Louisville was just political will. So these kids came in with a mandate to just do it. And they, and they did. Hmm. Do, do you get, do these fellows get sort of like special permission then? They, it, yes. I mean, they, that, they spend a lot of time trying to make sure they're talking to the right people and, and that the person that they're in contact with can give them the authority they need. Um, so there's, you know, you, you can be, your contact can be too high up. Like if you're, if the one who is, you know, the person you're depending on to open doors for you is not connected enough to the problems, then it's easy for them to just forget about you. Um, but if they're too far down the chain of the command, they're much too worried about the, you know, the impact on their day-to-day life and they maybe don't have the authority that they need. So finding the person in the middle who's both got the political will and, has a concrete understanding of the problem is is really important. Do you see is this is the fellowship program growing? Are you getting enough applicants to keep building it? We are. We're always looking for more, and we're always looking for a more diverse set. Um, so you know, when you're working with government, um, you don't have the luxury of only being able to cater to you know high level tech users. You have to represent the people that you're building stuff for. Um, so we put a really high premium on. Um, making the fellows representative. We're working in San Juan and Denver and Mesa, Arizona next year where there are um, high levels of Spanish-speaking population. Um, and so we really did a, a lot of work trying to recruit Spanish-speaking fellows. 
obviously we want um, other gender and racial diversity represented. This year, we're really proud of the fact that half of our, or for 2014, we're really proud of the fact that half of our fellows are women. And of the fellows, I think 12 of them are, are hardcore engineers and five of those are women. So we're really excited about um, the levels of diversity we've been able to create, but it's always hard. And so, and it's, you know, it's not a lot of pay, it's hard work. And so we do really have to sell it. But we have had increasing numbers of applicants every year since we started. It sounds appealing. It sounds like a, the, the thing I like about it is it's like, it's not volunteer work. It's, it's, it's civic action, but it has a lot of leverage behind it. Yeah. Like you can, it's like, yes, it's going to take a, a year for me, but like, I know that through the power of technology and coming in and, and getting something done, like you can do a lot of good all at once. Yeah. And there's nothing like um, showing cities something like Discover BPS to get them excited about making, creating a space where the fellows can do awesome work. Yeah. And I'm sure you guys are growing in reputation and all that. And when you can show them your previous work, it just makes it easier to get the next thing. And, and having them trust us enough to let us closer to the core functions of government. So what should I ask you about that we haven't covered yet? Um, we're working uh, for the first time outside the U.S., which is really exciting. Um, we've got pilots running the fellowship program in Mexico City, in the Caribbean, and in Germany. And then uh, three other pilots who are doing the brigade in Japan, in Poland, and in Ireland. And in all cases, I've been totally blown away by how much energy there is around this work, even in contexts where, you know, the governments are set up differently. Um, it's, it's, it is really inspiring to see such energy around people everywhere um, wanting to make their governments work better. In a place like Poland where, you know, they're 25 years removed from communism and um, in a place like Japan, where they're just they're they're just a couple of years out from a devastating natural or I guess man-made natural disaster, seeing how people embody those values in their individual unique uh, country contexts is totally fascinating and completely inspiring. And we are really looking forward to learning a lot from how they implement this model or change it or innovate on it and and plugging those learnings back into how we do things here. There's this there's a fairly well known. Um article or, or saying by a guy named Mark Andreessen, and it's uh, software is eating the world. Um, yeah. And it's, it seems like you guys are kind of helping make sure it eats government as well. I hope so. I hope that we end up eating the software, though. I don't know. I'm, I, kinda, I, I don't like the visual of the software eating us. I'm hoping that, you know, what, what we try to do and what, where the real sweet spot is, um, I think, for all of the tech industry is to figure out where the human element starts and the technology element ends and getting that right is the is the big challenge for all of us well i think we should leave it right there i think that's a nice ending awesome well thanks for having me this is fun absolutely it was a pleasure talking to you if people wanted to get in touch with you is there a good way to do that yeah bracy b-r-a-c-y at codeforamerica.org or c bracy on twitter if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 75. Today's podcast was recorded, edited, and produced by Mr. Mike Manor. Thanks for listening.